This is an ABC podcast. Across Australia on RN and internationally online, you're in the Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge. Great to have your company. Welcome to the program. Many of us take philosophy to be a culturally neutral sort of pursuit, an inquiry into being and truth that's pure and disinterested and operates at a level beyond the mundane considerations of class and race and politics. Well, today we're taking a closer look at that assumption. Tony Abbott once said that, a couple of times said that Australia is this important outpost for the Anglosphere. And again, a lot of progressives rolled their eyes and said they were appalled. But the overwhelming approach to philosophy in an Australian context is one that validates Tony Abbott's claims. That's Brian Mukandi. He's a lecturer in the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Queensland and originally trained as a physician in Zimbabwe. But then he came to Australia and completed his PhD in philosophy. And Brian has a really interesting take on what it's like to address questions of race in philosophy here in 21st century Australia, where issues around race and racism are so insisted upon from some quarters and so dismissed from others. Racism in philosophy has a noble pedigree. Immanuel Kant famously claimed that non-Europeans, particularly Africans, are incapable of sustained philosophical reflection. Well, of course, that's nonsense. Africa has a rich philosophical tradition, and it's one marked with race and politics. I'm really influenced. I've read a lot of work around kind of like the French philosophical tradition, in part because I've just found it richer than the Anglo-American kind of tradition. And interestingly, the African philosophical work that engages with that tradition, I find similarly in a lot of ways richer. And I think this is just a dispositional thing, you know, like I like art and literature and I just, you know, so the work by people like Pauline Huntonji and initially uh, Valentin Mudimbe. Huntonji is a Beninese philosopher. Um, Mudimbe is a Congolese philosopher uh, who's now based in the US. I found their work um, really, really interesting and really helpful. There's a hermeneuticist, uh, Sne Serakaraban, who's Eritrean, who's now based in the US. I found his work incredibly helpful. And Kirun Zwegu, she's an Igbo from Nigeria, and she's now based in the US as well, I think. I kind of find her work, particularly uh, her book looking at uh, an Igbo feminist account of African families, and the work around Ubuntu. And Ubuntu is a Ngugi name from Southern Africa. And Mogobe Ramose's work around that, uh, I found really, really profound and really helpful for my work. And a lot of these people that you mention, you say they're now working in the US, which is an interesting move, right? Does that signify a certain uh, career imperative, if you like, if you want to be a professional philosopher, Mm. that that's where you have to go and that, that, you know, staying in Africa, staying in Nigeria or in in the DRC or somewhere like this is is just not going to work out for you? I think we rarely think about how much money a philosophy publication costs. So if I think about my very first ever philosophy journal article that got published uh, in a, you know, this was in the South African Journal of uh, Philosophy. Firstly, I was doing a PhD in philosophy at the University of Queensland when I did it. uh, And I had a scholarship and that was 20 something thousand dollars a year to sustain me as I did this. Secondly, uh, University of Queensland's got a wonderful library. Um, oftentimes, there were books that were out of print that uh, they somehow managed to track down for me uh, that I could access. 
I won a graduate school travel award to the tune of something like $4,000, which allowed me to travel around, you know, to various places internationally, present early drafts of that work, get feedback. You know, I could sit courses and take extra courses, you know, get extra language courses and so forth. Were I to try and do the same project in most sub-Saharan African countries, even if somehow I could scrape together the money necessary uh, for a plane ticket to go, I spent a really enriching few weeks in Italy at a summer school that was incredibly helpful. I'm unlikely to have been given a visa as an African from a poor African country to go to Italy in the first place. Secondly, that plane ticket probably would have been beyond my means. Uh, thirdly, I'm unlikely to have had a library with the same kinds of resources. You know, people talk about the greater productivity of people in uh, the rich part of the world, right? I, I think my greater productivity isn't because I work harder, it's because there's a lot more resources at my disposal and I can leverage those in ways that my colleagues especially in more, in more resource-poor universities in, you know, in places like Sub-Saharan Africa, don't have access to. I want to talk a little bit more about that. But first of all, I mean, you mentioned um, Pascal Munguini. Yeah. Um, he has written that, I'll, I'll quote, yeah. you, you've quoted him as saying yeah. that African philosophy is a philosophy born of rage and humiliation. It was mm. born to overcome and to redeem Africa. Mm. And uh, I love you, you contrast that statement with this image of Descartes sitting mm. by the fire in his dressing gown and Absolutely. you know um, indulging in questions of metaphysics. What's going on for you with that comparison? I mean, mm. is are you saying that you know all African philosophy is inescapably political and post-colonial? I love Descartes. Uh, I think Descartes' meditations are just glorious. And I'm also deeply invested in metaphysical questions. I think we all are. I, but back to this question of the material conditions, if your starting point is a nice study in your dressing gown and you're sitting out there and thinking, is that a person, is that an automaton? At the same time that agents of your government, uh, of your state, of your society are raping and pillaging, your situation in that case means that there are things that you just don't have access to. Like there are material realities that are just beyond the scope of Descartes. And what I take from Nguini's point is that whether or not you're thinking about the question of mind-body dualism, you know, about the nature of infinity, regardless of what question you're grappling with, it doesn't make sense to grapple with that question from a situation other than yours. So for the vast majority of people in the world, the state of affairs is such that day-to-day -day life is a struggle against a social and political order that's stacked against them. And... A philosophy that's meaningful is one that takes that situation seriously and begins from that situation. So then if I read you right, you're, you're outlining a picture here where African philosophy is something that arises out of, or the kind of philosophy you're talking about arises mm. out of the experience of colonialism and the, the, mm. the struggles against colonialism. But then if we look at pre-colonial African mm. societies... Do you find philosophy in those societies or, or I mean, because I, I know you've said that, that there's a sense in which philosophy is a fundamentally European construct. So I guess that's partly what I'm asking here. <laughs> I guess the question is, what do you mean and what do I mean by philosophy? You know, so there is philosophy, the academic discipline, that's philosophy. And I think that thing is fundamentally European because uh, universities, as we know them, are a fundamentally European thing. And Mudimbe actually, you know, he writes about the colonial library. 
and the contemporary university, be it in you know in Australia, in Europe, in in Africa, in Asia, and South America, is an agent of that colonial library. You know, it's a Althusser, you know, spoke about uh, the ideological state apparatus. It's part of a global ideological state apparatus. It it feeds into that, and so I think academic philosophy. I think you know, in a sense, is inescapably colonial. But philosophy, you know, philosophy proper, philosophy itself. I would say whatever philosophy is, I cannot fathom a human society where the people within that society don't grapple with the question of what is it right to do? Why do we believe the things that we believe? I just find it inconceivable that there is a a community where critical inquiry is completely absent. You know, the idea of philosophy as some sacred thing that someone in Greece at some point discovered and then handed down through the ages, I think that narrative serves a particular social political purpose. If we go beyond that and we think about thought, you know, and we think about questioning and we think about kind of struggling with with our humanity, yeah, again, I just can't conceive of a community that doesn't do that in various ways. So how's it been for you, Brian, coming from a particular community with a particular set of questions that are, you know, philosophical, post-colonial, and translating that work into a Western philosophical environment? If, if indeed mm. that's what you're doing, I put that a little sure. awkwardly, but sure. you know what I'm on yeah, about there. Absolutely. What are the issues at play there in that project of articulating these sorts of questions in a country like Australia? <laughs> I'll share an early memory. Uh, and it's an early memory that's been really um, foundational for me. Around about the age of five or so, I realized that I'd always assumed that, uh, you know, my family's Shona, yeah? I grew up speaking Shona, but there was also the recognition that when you went to school, you had to speak English, you know, and at work, people spoke English. It just seemed to me as though the most obvious things that children in England would speak English at home and would have to learn Shona at school and, you know, <laughs> they'd have to speak Shona at work. And when I realized that that wasn't the case, I mean, like there was a sense of, of, of just being shocked that just the injustice, the unfairness of it. And every now and again, I realize I haven't quite outgrown that outrage and that surprise, ironically. I mean, you know, I did my undergrad studies. Uh, they weren't in philosophy, they were in medicine, but I did my undergrad studies uh, in Zimbabwe. The most brilliant, brilliant physicians, most amazing pediatricians, you know, like these really impressive neurosurgeons looked like me. Some of them were related to me. Like, you know, like I was in a context where I felt as though the question of black inadequacy had been answered and we could move on. What's strange for me about kind of philosophy in Australia is that as progressive as I think the philosophical community in Australia thinks it is, it's dark for me the extent to which that's still an open question here. And I'm not the question of... Of black adequacy. And, and I'll put it this way. You know, for, for Pascal, one of Pascal's pensées is like, you know, something a person's a read, but a read that thinks. You know, like uh, history of Western thought has this idea of rationality. Like, you know, you can go with Kant and Hegel and others. Like, you know, rationality is what's proper to the human. And one of the things that justified colonialism is, you know, the suspicion of the humanity of non-Europeans. And again, I think for a progressive society of thinkers, there's this belief that we've debunked all of that. 
without at the same time questioning the fact that our philosophical curricula are almost for the most part exclusively European. I think there's only one course of indigenous philosophy as far as I know in all of Australia and that's taught by Irene Watson, who's an absolute legend, Prof Watson in, in South Australia. But Africa is far from Australia, like in a, and, and not, not just in a geographical sense, you know. And I guess for me, it was like, if in my philosophy department, if we're not teaching Asian philosophy, if we're not teaching indigenous philosophy, Aboriginal, Torres Strait Islanders, kind of like philosophies, I just couldn't conceive of the possibility of African philosophy being taught. So how do you go about addressing that? Because I was um, I was listening to a talk that you gave. Um, I'm going to put the YouTube link on our website <laughs> where you, you talked about your experience as a PhD student here studying continental philosophy and being celebrated within that milieu. But then at some point you started doing things like writing about how academic philosophy in Australia is fundamentally racist. So you're sort of taking the bull by the horns there. First of all, well, you've articulated the argument there, but how did that go over? And is that something that you're still asserting wow. and, and wanting to push along? Here's the weird thing. Like, uh, I don't want to be that guy. And prior to studying my PhD in philosophy, I'd, you know, and, and on the basis of my medical background, I'd been working on um, around uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health policy. Uh, and at some point, uh, I met and got to know uh, Dr. Chelsea Bond. And later in my PhD, towards the end of my PhD, we started working together again. And thinking seriously about what it means to be an Aboriginal academic in an Australian institution, you know, thinking seriously about what it means to be about maybe 3% of the population, trying to articulate your sovereignty and trying to push back against kind of like institutional conceptions of who and what you are. I think engaging with colleagues of the Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Studies Unit, that forced me to think about where I was uh, in even more profound ways. Uh, and when you juxtapose the claims of philosophy to the reality of the practice of philosophy in an Australian context, I got to a point where there was this really difficult mismatch. And it's not to say, you know, like, and I, I don't want to make it seem as though I'm saying, like, all Australian philosophers are racist. You know, they're people who've done, like, really important work and really good work. But there's also this fascinating defensiveness. And I think it's this Cartesian thing, right? It's this idea that somehow these kind of political social issues are somehow just beneath them and imminent and and they've transcended that and so they couldn't possibly be racist, you know, because they're dealing with clear and distinct ideas eh, or something weird like that. And that breeds a defensiveness and I feel like a refusal to look at the reality of their praxis uh, squirrel in the face. On RN, you're in the Philosopher's Zone with me, David Rutledge, and Brian Mukandi from the Faculty of Medicine at the University of Queensland. He also has a PhD in philosophy, so Brian's wearing two doctor's hats today. We're talking about hidden questions of race on the Australian philosophy scene. It certainly seems to me that racism is on the agenda in Australian public discourse in a way that it really hasn't been for a long time. And, mm. you know, it's all bound up in the culture wars. So a lot of that discourse is just, just makes you want to tear your hair out. But, but there it is, being taken on in various flailing and um, uncharitable and very sort of angry ways. Can you see a, a similar kind of process taking place in academic philosophy? Honestly, no. But then also... I think what's happening in broader society is instructive. I mean, like just recently, the Mark Knight's cartoon uh, of Serena Williams, 
I thought was incredible was the response to that. I mean, like, what was fascinating for me is looking at the people who were defending Mark Knight and rationalizing it were overwhelmingly white. And I don't think I saw any non-white people. No, 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 I might have seen one or two. Uh, But for the most part, and there's this really interesting thing, right? It's like someone with a privileged access to this thing, racism, is telling somebody else that uh, what they did was racist. And then you've got a group of people with no experience of being racialized in that way, deciding, you know, that this absolutely wasn't the case. And philosophically, I'm really interested in meaning making, you know, and just the the politics of meaning making and, and just the phenomenology of meaning making. And I'm really interested in the question, what does it mean to say to Mark Knight, Mark, I'm sure you're a great human being. You know, I'm going to assume that you're a nice person. And what I'm going to tell you is that there are things that you're ignorant of. There are things that you don't know. And maybe even you can't know. But I am someone who does. And I'm telling you that this is a problem and, you know, you need to seek redress in some way. You know, like if Mark came to see me as Brian the doctor and had pain somewhere and I was explaining a diagnosis to him that for him was inconceivable, but I was like, yeah, look, mom, I know you're finding this very hard to believe, but, you know, I don't want to wish anything bad on him, so I won't give a diagnosis, but I was like, you have this. What would happen is that, you know, like the thought process would be, I don't understand this. I might go and read a, a pathology textbook, but the truth is I don't have the training to really understand this. I need to take this person at their word because they know what they're talking about. But I come to him as a philosopher or just a knower. And the assumption is you can't possibly know more than I do, or I can't possibly not know to the same extent that you do. And what's tragic for me is the failure to recognize how history is implicated in that, that for hundreds of years, I've been interpolated as someone who can't be rational, who can't think and who can't know. Ergo, of course, when I confront him with knowledge that he doesn't share, that the assumption is I'm the one who's wrong. But then it's like there's a saporia, right? How do you tell someone who's incapable of hearing from you that they need to hear from you? But I don't think that's just a problem in the broadcasting world or broader uh, society in Australia. I think it's something that infects uh, philosophy as well and philosophers. So uh, if I were an associate professor of philosophy in an Australian university, I might say that Brian McCundy person isn't qualified to say, I've been reading Hegel and Nietzsche and Marx and others longer than he has, and he's just wrong. I'd say, okay, great, we can agree to disagree, but you haven't been listening to Aileen Morton Robinson. You know, you haven't been listening to Irene Watson. You know, like, I am fascinated by the repetitions of the movement that is Terranalius, even in a philosophical context. You know, I'm fascinated by the ways in which if you were to go to most uh, academic philosophers in Australia today and you ask them about their take on Terranalius, they'll shake their heads and be appalled. And yet at the same time, there is this ability to comfortably go on without being troubled by the fact that there isn't an Aboriginal academic on their corridor. But then you've got to ask, is what's happening in those departments actually philosophy or is it the history of European ideas masquerading as philosophy? You know, Tony Abbott once said that, a couple of times said that Australia is this important outpost for the Anglosphere. And again, a lot of progressives rolled their eyes and said they were appalled. 
But the overwhelming approach to philosophy in an Australian context is one that validates Tony Abbott's claims. And I haven't seen evidence that that's changing. What I see is more white philosophers talking about decolonizing Australian philosophy. I've seen some all-white panels or almost all-white panels thinking about the philosophy of race. And so there are interesting different attempts at cosmetic change, interesting attempts at marketing philosophy differently. But if for the most part when reconciliation is brought up by philosophers, it's being brought up exclusively, almost exclusively by white Australian philosophers or non-Indigenous philosophers. Because, you know, like I'm, I'm a settler as well. Then there is an appearance of progress, but it's a false motion. There isn't really genuinely that movement towards a genuine change. Let's keep talking about this in terms of the identity cost mm. that um, uh, Charles Taylor mm. writes about. When, when he talks about mutual understanding being reached between two people, that there has to be a, an identity cost. Mm. What's your understanding of that identity cost that comes as the result of two people trying to reach an understanding? Um, say you want a job from me, yeah? Say I exclusively speak Shona or I speak English, I just choose not to. And you want a job from me, and I say the only way you get the job is if you can demonstrate some proficiency in Shana. And because I'm nice, I might give you some time to learn. Our power differential is one where I can maintain, just on a linguistic level, you know, I can just keep speaking in Shana to my heart's content and know that uh, if you don't learn, if you don't become proficient, I can just get somebody else to. Like, you know, like I don't perceive that I have a vested interest in there being mutual understanding. I think Taylor's insight is that, look, you know, he says, like, you know, one of the privileges of ruling beyond the financial gains and stuff is being able to be self-satisfied, being able to stand your ground, to occupy your ground or ground that you take to be yours and know that it's the other who has to do the work of making themselves make sense to you. You know, the very first, before I started my, my PhD, I went to a seminar. I walked into the room and someone at the door said, I think you're lost. Uh, this is the philosophy seminar. And I was like, no, no, I'm in the right place. Oh, and I say this to my medical students, you know, like um, my very first class with them, I, I, I walk in, I say to them, I was like, you know, the truth is if I bumped into most of you on a bus at night, um, you know, if I bumped into you in a, in a park at night, you'd be afraid of me. You know, we'd have a different kind of relationship. Even in a teaching context, I have to do the work to convince my interlocutor that the things that I'm saying actually make sense, you know, and that when I say things that they haven't heard before that they don't understand, I have to do the work to convince them to kind of do the work to follow me. You as the representative of a marginalized Absolutely. group. Yeah. Um, my white colleagues don't have to do that. You know, my female colleagues to a certain degree also have to do that. You know, my, my, my white male colleagues don't. And so it's like studying my PhD, there was a recognition that if I demonstrate that I know Hegel's phenomenology, if when it's appropriate I can uh, describe the niceties of Kant's transcendental aesthetic, then I will be viewed as a full acceptable member of this group. And in fact, in order to be viewed as a full accepted members of this group, I actually need to demonstrate my grasp of Kant's transcendental aesthetic. I had white friends who would say, why are you reading the critique of pure reason? You don't need to. And my response would be, you don't need to. I do. 
despite the fact that it has nothing to do with uh, the work I'm actually engaged in and necessary. And, you know, like reading Kant's first critique is a small identity cost to pay, but it represents, I think, a broader identity cost that's there for kind of the, let's call it a, a marginal philosopher. Brian McCandy from the University of Queensland. And in addition to what we've been talking about today, Brian's also done some fascinating work in the philosophy of medicine, particularly on the phenomenology of the doctor-patient relationship. And we're going to get him back on the program to talk about all of that in the not-too-distant future. Which reminds me that next week, we're talking about medical ethics and issues around informed consent for young people in the hospital setting. So join me for that one, and of course, check out our back catalogue for all of our past programs right there on the website or via the ABC Listen app or wherever you happen to get your podcasts. This has been The Philosopher's Zone. I'm David Rutledge. Thanks for your company this week. Bye for now.